So I have a, a question for you as I start my sermon this morning. Do you know your neighbors? Or maybe I could say it in a different way. How well do you know your neighbors? Catherine and I will celebrate three years of marriage this coming July, and in three short years we've managed to move a grand total of five times. Just as we get everything out of boxes and on the walls, we decide to take everything back down again and pack it up all over so that we can start once again. Moving is not one of my favorite things in this world, but it it does mean that I constantly get to meet new neighbors. When we move, we try to make some effort to get to know the people who live near us. We want to be good neighbors to them, and we hope that we have good neighbors for us. When we moved where we're living now, we were excited to find out that someone who lives just a a few doors down from from us not only has some Sewanee connections, but she also works at another Episcopal church here in Washington, D.C. She will be a very good neighbor for us during our time there. I was thinking about neighbors as I started to read this story from Luke's gospel account. This, this story that we hear today is the story of Jesus healing the centurion slave, and it's a story about an outsider being filled with faith, exemplary faith, faith greater even than that, than that of the Hebrew people, Jesus says. And as I, I read it, I can't help but think that it's also a story about relationships, the story about friendships and neighborly love. I want to talk more about that in just a few minutes. We find ourselves today at the beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 7. It's, it's important to note that what takes right place right before this reading in Luke chapter 6 is what is sometimes called Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. That sermon very much parallels what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel account. In the sermon, Jesus preaches about loving one's enemies. He talks about being non-judgmental and how we should do good in our day-to-day lives. And then in the very next chapter where the story picks up for today, he has to go out and practice what he has been preaching. The story that we hear today is also found in Matthew chapter 8 with a couple of significant differences. In Matthew's version, we're told that the slave, the centurion slave, is not at the point of death as he is in Luke's version. Matthew says that he's simply paralyzed and in great pain. There's not that sense of urgency that we hear in Luke's version of the story. The other main difference between the two tellings of this story is that in Matthew's version, the centurion comes to Jesus himself, whereas in in Luke's version, he sends out not one but two different groups to intercede on his behalf. A group of Jewish elders come first, and then later, as Jesus is making his way to the centurion's home, a group of friends come out to meet him. As you may or may not know, centurions were not your typical friendly neighbors back in Jesus' time. They represented the mighty arm of the Roman Empire, and they were military leaders put in charge of soldiers. Centurions show up rather frequently in the Gospel accounts and in the book of Acts, and that isn't very surprising since they were a part of the the Roman occupation during Jesus' time. What is a bit surprising, at least to me, though, is that they are often portrayed in a positive way in the New Testament. Jesus is quite harsh with his own disciples, calling them stupid, slow, unfaithful, and he even calls Peter Satan at one point. The centurions, conversely, are often showed to be faith-filled individuals. As Jesus is hanging on the cross in Luke chapter 23, it's a centurion who praises God and says, certainly this man was innocent. 
Cornelius the centurion is called a generous and a prayerful man in Acts chapter 10. The centurion that we read about today fits this profile. He's likely a Gentile, maybe a a God-fearer, and he clearly trusts that Jesus can do the miraculous as he seeks him out so that he can heal his slave. We're told that first he sends Jewish elders who commend the centurion to Jesus as he's helped them to build their local synagogue. He loves our people, they say to him. As Jesus starts to make his way to the centurion's house, he stopped just outside, and this time a group of the soldier's friends come out to meet him. We have a message, they say. Don't come in because he says that he is not worthy to receive you. Just say the word, they say, and his slave shall be made well. Jesus, we're told, is stunned and amazed. No one in Israel has faith as great as this, he says, and he leaves the town and the centurion slave is found to be in good health again. This is a story about an unlikely character demonstrating a great faith, a faith that surpasses even those who are among the religious, and many sermons have been preached about how we as the religious of our own day should be very weary of saying who can be in and who can be out, who has the right faith and who doesn't have the right faith. God will not be restrained by our boundaries that we draw around each other. God will surprise us. God might even enrage us when we see God extending that grace to even our enemies. That's an important sermon to hear, but that's not what I want to say today. I was, I was struck as I read this story by some of the other characters within it who display a very great faith as well, the centurion's friends. Jesus and the centurion are normally identified as the key players within the story, but maybe those who bring before Jesus the hopes and the needs of the centurion are equally as important. Did you notice within this story that we don't actually ever meet the centurion? It's not actually even clear if if Jesus meets the centurion within this story. It's only through the Jewish elders and then later his friends that the needs are expressed to Jesus. They also are believers, men and women of great faith, who do their very best to connect their friend with Jesus. And so they also are great exemplars of faith in this story. As I said before, I think this story is about relationships, and those of us who voluntarily tie ourselves to a religious community like the Episcopal Church know well the value of relationships. When one of us hurts, the rest of us hurt. When one of us rejoices, the rest of us rejoice. When one of us weeps, the rest of us weep. I've been struck lately with by how how important a community is and how important relationships are when you are grieving or fearful or in pain for some reason. Others reach out, others bring meals, others say prayers, others share their love. That's what a good community does. That's what a good church does. The Harvard political scientist Robert Putnam has has written a lot lately about the breakdown of the social connections in our American culture. He writes about the decline of community institutions like Rotary Clubs and Kiwanis Groups, the Boys and the Girl Scouts, and he writes about even the the decline of churches. In a recent interview, he says this. He said, We were shocked to discover that people who are active in religious communities are systematically more generous and better neighbors. They're more likely to work on community projects They're more likely to give to secular causes as well as to religious causes. They're more likely to volunteer, to donate blood, 
they're even more likely to let a stranger cut in front of them in line at the grocery store. But it turns out, he says, that virtually none of that seems to have anything to do with the content of people's theology. His research shows that that what determines a religious person's generosity and neighborliness is, is not a person's particular doctrine or set of beliefs, but the relationships that they have with others because of their church or faith community. So as you hear this story today, ask, ask yourself, how well do you know your neighbors? How are those relationships that you have with others? I'm guessing that many of you could list many ways that you are similar to the centurion in this story for today. Many of you are people of great power and authority with many others working for you. That's not uncommon in a city like Washington, D.C. Maybe your faith is even great like that of the centurions. You trust, you believe, you know that Jesus has the power and the authority to do great things. But maybe as we hear this story today, we can begin to make a list of the ways in which we can also be like the friends of the centurion, the elders, the the neighbors who go out of their way to take the needs and the hopes and the desires of the other to the one who offers mercy and wholeness. The human community, you and me, we play a role in the healing of others. Jesus is the healer, but he uses us in the process to bring about that healing. You've all likely heard the great African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. I think the same is true if we want to heal the world. It takes a village, it takes a community of faith, it takes relationships, it takes you and me to heal the broken world. May we be that community of God for the healing of our brothers and sisters in this world. Amen. Amen.